Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for February 17, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. Happy to welcome you to another edition of our program with your source each Friday for commentary and insights from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on all things appellate law. This week, I'm joined by a renowned writer and noted legal writing instructor, Gary Kinder, will visit the program. He'll discuss his path from law school graduate to part-time prosecutor to best-selling author who shifted the paradigm of true crime nonfiction writing with his book, Victim, The Other Side of Murder. Alongside his own writing career, Mr. Kinder has spent the past 30 years leading writing seminars for attorneys, helping them make the most of their legal filings and avoid writing missteps that often beset attorneys. In our conversation today, Mr. Kinder will share his most important and effective writing advice and also describe how he's distilled and digitized that advice to an automated editing software program called WordRick. Before we get to my discussion with Mr. Kinder, I'd like to remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. Let's find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears, and one hour of CLE credit can be yours. Without any further preamble, then, I give you my conversation with Gary Kinder, best-selling author, WordRake founder, and veteran legal writing instructor. Very pleased to be joined by Gary Kinder, man of many titles, New York Times bestselling author, attorney, writing instructor for attorneys, and recently a, the founder of the program WordRake, a, a software editing program used by attorneys, and I know some folks here at the Daily Journal to help uh, make our writing more concise and, and tight. Mr. Kinder, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. It's nice to be here with you today. Let's start towards the beginning of your professional path in that transition period. You had recently graduated from the University of Florida, I believe, and had practiced briefly uh, and then struck out on a writing path. Uh, tell me what, uh, what your motivation was and what your, your plan was then. Oh, gosh. I, I wish I could say I had a plan. It, it just happened. I think the reason it happened in that fashion was, you know, when we go to, go to even toward the end of high school and then we go off to college and then law school, we'll... Uh, we, we go to, uh, school, uh, for three months, or excuse me, nine months out of the year, three quarters of the year, and then, uh, three months in the summers we work a job, and then we go to school for nine months out of the year, and we just, we get caught up in that cycle. And when I graduated from law school, and, uh, you know, I took the bar exam, I taught at the law school for a short while, and got the bar behind me, got the results, and most of my, <laughs> Most of my um, colleagues there in law school had, uh, you know, we graduated on Saturday and on Monday they reported to work at a firm somewhere in Florida. And I thought, you know, I, I, do, I don't want to do that just yet. I want to take the bar exam, but I still want to travel and, and do some things I'd never done before and see some things, things like snow. I'd never seen snow. And uh, I ended up in a place called Sun Valley, Idaho. And I just, I love the mountains. I love the winters. And and uh, I ended up staying for the summer. I started doing, uh, believe it or not, part-time prosecution work while I was there. And I was writing briefs for law firms. But honestly, my main job there full-time was as a bellman in the Sun Valley Lodge, which I loved. Met a lot of really interesting people. I worked with a great bunch of guys. I learned, uh, it, it'd be a misstatement to say that I learned how to ski, but I I learned to get down the mountain fairly well. I never did get really good at it. But during that process, now I, I wasn't dating anybody at the time, wasn't involved. Uh, when I got out of law school, I didn't owe any money, uh, which wasn't that uncommon back then. 
Um, and so I was just taking some time off and letting things kind of settle and enjoying myself and the new life and, and the mountains. And I started writing as a hobby. I'd never written anything before that hadn't been required. And um, the more I wrote, the more I loved writing. And after a couple of years, I I finally decided uh, to quit the prosecutor's office, quit doing the part-time stuff, and I quit uh, working as a bellman. And uh, I, I had uh, $8,000 saved up. And I figured, well, that'll last me for about eight months. So in that time, I have to get published. I have to become a published author within eight months, which, uh, looking back, I, I did that. Um, it was kind of a, a, a very lucky circumstance, I, I guess. It doesn't always happen that fast. But I got published in a magazine, uh, you know, a national magazine, and went on to publish in more national magazines, and then started a book. and. But it just it just happened. At that point, when you had begun to pursue writing full time, what uh, what sort of differences did you notice between the writing that you were doing then and maybe the kind that you had done as a part time prosecutor or the writing you had done uh, during law school? I think that the main um, difference is not a difference between legal writing and let's call it generic writing, writing for the public. Um, I, I don't think that there is a difference there. I think that there's a perceived difference. And I think that the the perception is that when we write a brief for a court, that the brief has to be uh, structured very blandly. It has to be uh, pretty dull, or it's not legal, if you will. Mm-hmm. If, it's, if it's interesting, that it, it, it can't be written correctly. Um, and of course, if you're writing for a magazine, you're writing a book, you've got to grab somebody by the throat in the first sentence. And over the last, uh, well, I guess we'll get to talk about this at some point, but over the last 25 or 30 years, I've taught lawyers around the country how to improve their writing. And that's one thing that I tell them all the time is, you know, you don't have to open your brief the day the contract was signed. You can open the day the contract was breached in some dramatic fashion and come back to the day the contract was signed. But we have so many legal conventions that we feel like we have to follow, and we don't. And if you talk to judges, as I have, you'll find that they are starved, as one of them put it, for anything that's even half creative. And they don't mean quoting Shakespeare all the time. They're talking about... Let's get to the point faster, you know, engage me in the story. All, all law cases are stories. Uh, there's conflict. There's natural conflict. Uh, law uh, Cases in, in the law and, and athletic events are the two most natural stories because we don't know what's going to happen here. And there's a lot of conflict. It goes back and forth. Uh, and yet, it's almost like we lawyers feel that we have to make it as excruciatingly dull as possible, or it can't possibly be legal. And yet, if you talk to the judges, they feel exactly the opposite. Yeah, it does seem like sometimes there is a sense that creative writing and legal writing exist on sort of a Venn diagram with two spheres that do not intersect necessarily. Right. A few years later, after law school, you published your first book, Victim, The Other Side of murder. It's a true crime account of some grisly killings in, in Utah known as the Hi-Fi Murders. I'd be curious to know how you came to know about this crime, how you came to select it as the subject of that, that first book. 
again, uh, so many things seem to just be an accident looking back on my life. Um, I was at my house one day in my apartment there in Sun Valley, and um, I got a call from a woman who told me that her husband was in jail. And um, she said uh, he is the trustee now at this jail in Farmington, Utah. And she said he bought the rights as his trustee in jail um, from these two perpetrators, three perpetrators, um, who had committed this horrific crime, mainly one of them. And uh, he wants to know if you'd be interested in uh, writing a book about it. So anyhow, one thing led to another. He knew I had a law degree, knew I was interested in writing. And so I ended up going down to the to the courthouse and sat in on the, the trial. And because of his connections inside the jail, I was able to get into the cell with the main, the guy who had killed everybody, the main mass murderer, a guy named Dale Pierre. And... Um, and interview him and then after he was convicted i continued to correspond with him and eventually uh, was allowed to visit him in the prison but um very quickly i realized that the story here was not the perpetrator it was the victims and to my knowledge uh, nobody had ever covered the victim side of a violent crime like this and that's where i turned my focus the the father of one of the victims, father and husband of two of the victims. Uh, his wife died, his son was, um, they thought had died, and over a period of uh, months, uh, the boy, who was 16 at the time, eventually survived all of it. Um, I met the uh, father, he was very, very reticent at the beginning, and I just told him who I was, what I wanted to do, and I wanted to tell the victim's side, and he pretty quickly warmed up to that. And I'll never forget one day, and I still get choked up when I think about this. Um, I told him what I wanted to do, and he said, his son's name was Courtney. Um, he said, uh, i got to talk to Courtney about this, but he said, if you think that hearing my story will help someone else down the road, um, then I'm happy to talk with you. And he did, and it did. I got a lot of letters over the years from people who read his story, and they told me, and I said, tell him that, you know, send a letter to him also. But they had told me that, that uh, reading his story allowed them, helped them get through a very tragic, difficult time in their own lives. And that's, that's um, I, I didn't want to write about true crime. Uh, that was not my motivation. I wanted to tell a bigger story. Uh, something that kind of transcends the, the genre, for instance, um, and, and informs a whole area that a lot of us in, in just American society don't know about. We read a little bit, bit about it in the newspaper, but we don't know what really goes on after the reporters leave. What, if you can recall, inspired you to train the focus of that book on the victim side of the story? Your, your book is noted for being uncommon in, the, in that respect. And what uh, what were those interactions like? Then with with um, Dr. Nesbitt, the the father. I uh, as I got into the the story, I you know I'd read in Cold Blood and uh, all about the the perpetrators, and it you know it talks a little bit about the victims there, the Clutter family in Kansas, but uh, we don't really go into the to the victims. And I thought that's where the real story should be. We shouldn't be glorifying people who commit mass murders, and that it does that when you you know you write a book that focuses on them. Um, 
so I, it's just as I got into the story, actually I hadn't been in the story very long when I started wondering, I, to my knowledge, no one had ever done that. And I thought, you know, again, I wanted to do something that was bigger than just writing a true crime book. And um, and it, it turned out, I mean, I had, I talked to professors in victimology uh, maybe 20 or 30 years after the book had been written and, um, and published, and, and they said that there still was nothing out there about the victims. And I think the reason is, and, you know, you have to understand this, if, if you think about it, uh, if this is shortly after a mass murder, for instance, has taken place, and then you have a reporter come up to you and say, so how does it feel to have your son in intensive care? How did it feel to look at your wife, you know, in the morgue uh, that night? And and there aren't too many, first of all, reporters. There, reporters can be pretty pretty um, hardball, but there there's even a limit even what they think they would, would feel comfortable doing. And I think that might be right along where that, that limit is. And also, the victims just don't want to talk about it. Obviously, it's just they have to relive all that pain, you know, that they're, first of all, still going through, even if it's some time later. So I think it's very easy to talk to the perpetrators. You, you go walk in the prison, get visitation privileges. It might take a little while, but you walk in, and they want to talk to anybody. They're, otherwise, they're just sitting there, you know, watching uh, soap operas. But once I had met Byron Nesbitt and told him what I wanted to do, the first meeting uh, was was a little tense, not through him, but because there were other people there, other family members there, and that made it a little tense. And they didn't know me. Um, back then, for me, at that age, I was probably 27, 28. Um, I, uh, you know, trying to get people to talk with me, I just had to tell them the truth, what I was doing. Um, and let them get to know you a little bit. I talked to a lot of doctors and nurses and medical personnel and, and the tax squad and lawyers on both sides of the case, um, as teachers, friends, and you just have to let them get to know you a little bit. Uh, and you have to be honest. You have to be forthright with them. Um, and I think that that's what helped. And once, once too, uh, realized that when Byron Nesbitt said that I was okay, then everybody else thought, well, if Byron says he's okay, he must be okay. So he opened a lot of doors for me by just agreeing to talk with me. Not to violate the spirit of your, your work, but I would be curious to ask about your interactions with the, the perpetrator who I, you said you spent some time with. What was it like interacting with him and you know, knowing he had committed some, some pretty heinous killings? <laughs> about the time I decided I wanted to uh, devote my career to writing instead of practicing law. Uh, a book had just been published by uh, Tom Wolfe from, you know, The Right Stuff, Bonfire, The Vanities, and a dozen other books. And in this book, he started, um, or he, it was called The New Journalism, and he explained The New Journalism. Um, and I, a friend had told me I should read that, that book, and he was still trying to figure out what I wanted to write about. And I read that that book, and I mean, I just devoured that book. I just wrote wrote all over it. Uh, but he really was the catalyst for me to jump into writing narrative nonfiction. A lot of people misunderstand this term, the new journalism, or one that I really don't like is um, creative nonfiction. 
uh, it makes people think that you make it up if you can't get the facts, and nothing could be further from the truth. And narrative nonfiction is just where you research everything. You, you go to the site where the murders took place. You go, you go to the operating room where the brain surgery took place. You, you ride around with the tax squad, and you get yourself locked up in a six-by-nine-foot cell with, with the perpetrator. Uh, all of that stuff sounded so... Uh, romantic to me, so cool. I thought, this is what I want to do. So when I met with this Dale Pierre in the in the jail, uh, he was completely unwired. Uh, somehow when he came along, his, his emotional system just was not connected to his brain. And uh, I think psychiatrists today, uh, even back then, they were already saying there's a chemical imbalance. Uh, but he was definitely a psychopath. He had no he had no feelings about anybody around him. He he liked to pretend he was an intellectual, and he, he even gave me his, his prison diary to use, and there wasn't really much revealing in that, except that he changed his name every other day. It just it showed you how deeply he really despised himself, I think. Um, but um, it was just a very interesting experience for me to be with someone like that. And it, when I started putting... Um, victim together and I had a publisher and my editor in New York um, we had I had seven different pieces involving Dale Pierre and I I, I, I I dispersed them throughout what's happening with Courtney in the hospital and what Courtney was like and his progress and that sort of what's happening with the criminal justice system um, and I um, that eventually uh, was. I was working with my editor. That became three little segments, and finally we just stuck all of it about him in one, uh, because it was so compelling to be on that straight narrative line with this 16-year-old boy fighting for his life in the hospital. Since then, you published two additional books. Uh, one in 1987, Light Years: An Investigation into the Extraterrestrial Experiences of Edward Meyer, and then your New York Times bestseller, Ship of Gold: Into the Deep. Blue Sea, published in 1998. Can you tell me just a bit about those works and, and how you came upon the subject matter for them? Yeah, the second book, Light Years, uh, I, I advise people not to read it. Uh, it's not something <laughs> not too many authors do, and maybe it was the curse of the second book. But, um, I didn't take the time to do it right. It could have been a more interesting story. I Frankly, I just didn't do it right. It just was not a very good book. It, it actually was on a couple of bestsellers lists, you know, smaller bestsellers lists, but paperback and in England and places, but I never did like that. But um, Ship of Gold, uh, I really, really liked. I spent, uh, it, this wasn't every day because I have, was traveling around the country teaching writing programs to lawyers, but I, I spent the better part of 10 years working on, on Ship of Gold, and I love that story because it's about a guy who wants to do something that no one has ever done before, and everybody who knows tells him that he cannot do this, he can't achieve it, um, he's lying to his investors, and but he wants to be the first one to go to the bottom of the deep ocean and actually work on the bottom. And the foremost expert in the world challenged him on that. And this is a guy who was the superintendent of salvage for the, the U.S. Navy, and he had been on every deep water recovery attempt in, in Russia and China, working with other governments, all top secret, you know, black ops type stuff. 
and he had done it all and seen it all, and he told this guy in front of other people that he was lying to them, and it couldn't be done. Mm-hmm. But this young guy named Tommy had figured it out, and eventually he did do it, and he did get to the bottom of the ocean. Now, the first third of the story, though, is about this ship that sank in 1857, and that's dramatic and colorful, and it's a costume drama uh, in the book, um, and it was so much fun researching that. But these uh, people were coming back from the California Gold Rush, and they, uh, there were 600 people on this ship, big sidewheel steamer. I didn't even know these ships like that existed back just before the Civil War. Mm. Um, they got into a big hurricane. There were tons and tons of gold on board, uh, women and children. And, uh, they were just about three or four days from home back in New York, uh, when they hit a big hurricane and developed some engine problems and eventually the ship sank. And it, to this day, it's the biggest at-sea disaster that non-wartime uh, in American history. The Titanic, of course, was British. Um, but 425 men died. And uh, it, it, the story behind it and the few people who were rescued, it was 200 miles at sea and at 8,000 feet of water. And then the other two-thirds of the story is how this young man who proved everybody wrong, and I was just fascinated at 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 that particular um, quality in him. What is it that drives someone to ignore all the naysayers, to be absolutely certain that he is right and, and prove everybody wrong? And he succeeded and brought back tons and tons of gold, and it's just a fabulous story. Your own story and your own professional path certainly uh, evinces some similar ingenuity and, and determination. One turn on it, as we've hinted at already, is you beginning to to lecture and teach writing to attorneys in 1988. I'd be curious to know how you, you came to conceive of that position, how you came to, to find yourself in it. Certainly such a role is not one that all students see advertised at you know, OCI interviews. How uh, how did you come, come to fill it? Once again... <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing. I um, I had my two babies, my daughters, and uh, we had to start thinking about right schools for them and stuff like that. And um, so we decided to move from Idaho over to Seattle, where my wife at the time was from. And um, I um, I thought, well, you know, big firms need editors, obviously. I mean. Uh, a writer writes a book, and if the book is really good and does really well, um, then uh, everybody, including the writer, the editor, the agent, uh, the copy editor, the publicist, all of those people, the publisher, if they're really lucky, share a million dollars. And that even true, you know, back then, and then that's true again today. That would be huge today. Um, but but even if if that were were true, um, you uh, a lawyer, uh, even if you were highly successful, uh, and everybody shares all that, a lawyer uh, frequently has tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars writing on a brief she's writing, and nobody looks at it. And I had, I had an agent who would look at what I had written, and I had my my editor, who was also my publisher, ended up buying the publishing house at Grove Atlantic because um, he had so many writers uh, writing for him. And 
Um, he goes over everything with a fine-tooth comb, and then then we have the, the copy editor come in, and the copy editor will take an 800-page manuscript uh, like Ship of Gold and put five or six stickies on every single page. And you have to look at every one of those, and it's grammar checking, and it's this. This is a little oddly worded, and it, over every, every, everything like that. And again, there might be a million dollars if you're lucky. So I thought that 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 was awfully ironic, that with so much writing on lawyers, uh, so much writing on lawyers writing. Mm-hmm. Um, that they they obviously would have editors, and I got over to uh, Seattle and I approached the big firm here, Perkins Coie, and I presented this idea being an in-house editor, someone to help train the associates, someone to help um, help the you know edit the partners on the bigger cases, and um, and they really loved the idea, uh, but. They took it back to to their lawyers and their in their practice groups, and their lawyers didn't love the idea. They didn't want somebody else taking a look at their work and more deadline pressure and all that. So the whole idea just died. And I, you know, I thought, wow, that's uh, I can't believe they're, you know, they're overlooking something that would be so helpful. One of those practice group heads uh, came to me. He said, "Why don't you come in here and and teach us how to do what you do?" So I created this little writing seminar for Perkins Coie. In 1988, and I, it just led to more teaching. They wanted me to go down to their brand new LA office. I did that. I met somebody from one of the mega firms, um, based in LA, Latham and Watkins, and, uh, they wanted me to go teach at 10 of their offices, and it just, it just grew. Within, within a year, I had, uh, uh, yeah, I was traveling all over the country teaching writing programs to law firms, and I, Eventually, I was teaching 50 to 60 times a year. I was able to make a decent living and, and eat and, and uh, educate and clothe and make happy my two daughters and, um, and still work on a book, so it worked out very well. At that point, you had been writing for a significant period of time for you know, public consumption as opposed to consumption by judges and, and clerks. Um, did you find that your, your talents and your, your skills were readily translatable to be you know, conveyed to the attorneys in your your seminar audiences. I, I think so, and you know I can't speak for them. Only I can. The only thing I can say is that they kept coming back. You know, firms kept having me come back to teach uh, the seminars. You know, the open programs I would do in various. I would just get a hotel room. You know, ballroom in a hotel in in San Francisco, for instance, or L.A. or. Chicago or Atlanta and, and, and send out flyers and, and get it approved in that state. And, um, and the seminars just grew and grew. So I think, um, I, I think that, uh, I, I always analyze things. I'm a real nuts and bolts person. Um, and I would try to figure out, you know, if this, if this sentence or if this paragraph works, why does it work? What did I do in this sentence, or what did that author do in that sentence that makes it work? So I was constantly analyzing stuff like that. And then when I would teach, um, everybody knows, anybody who's ever taught realizes that you have to learn a hundred times more than what you're teaching um, and what you're trying to convey to your students. And, and these were, you know, I, I probably the vast majority of my audiences were young people, young lawyers who had graduated from Harvard and Stanford and Yale and 
Virginia, you know, just really, really bright young people, and but they didn't get this in law school. Uh, legal writing programs were not set up to teach writing. There was more legal research in writing, teach you how to use back then the library and then later using the Internet for research. And um, it was a, um, I, I, it was just an opportunity for me to show what they could do with their, their writing. And I, I would teach little techniques. And, you know, I, I, I always... Um, frowned upon uh, any kind of teaching. It can be a ski instructor where they tell you the result of what you're supposed to be doing, like write, make your writing clear and concise, make this shorter, but they don't teach you how to get there. They, they tell you, keep your skis together, and you go, well, that's great, but how do I do that? What do I do with my, my knees and my ankles and my shoulders and my hips? You know, how, how do I keep my skis together? And so I, I would approach writing uh, the same way. You know, write in a more compelling fashion. Well, that's great, but how do I do that? And by the time I started teaching, of course, I had I had already done this in two books, and I was working on a third. So I had a pretty good idea how to make the writing come alive and and make it uh, clear and concise. You had to be clear and concise, or you just would never get get published. And so I'd been through. Believe me, I'd thrown away the million words that Hemingway talks about. <laughs> I'd been through. I had all the rejection slips and all that stuff. And I, I, I think that, you know, you, you, I, I would say, okay, here's how this guy opened a brief, but here's how you could open a brief. And I think it became pretty obvious that the second one was so much more appealing and more interesting and so much more compelling than the first one. They could see immediately that a judge is going to respond positively to that. That's going to be good for me and good for my client. So, obviously, your, your seminar is were and, and have been a success that at any point and for many quarters did you receive pushback or skepticism from attorneys that might think that the style of writing that that you had done narrative nonfiction wouldn't necessarily be the sort of thing that would translate into to legal writing or um, skepticism uh, of that of that nature I, I well I can't speak for them uh, again uh, only they could tell you if they were skeptical but I've had a lot of people say uh, oh, gosh, you know, I was told I had to go to this seminar, and I was the editor of Law Review, and I thought, what can I learn about writing? But, man, I never looked at it this way. I really, I really, I was just engaged all day long, and I learned so much and this kind of stuff. So I think if there is skepticism, um, I think as long as they have to be there, right, <laughs> uh, and you're given the opportunity to overcome that skepticism, um, I, I think that they started to, uh, to see that fairly quickly. Um, but you know, I did. I did have people come up and tell me things, things like I didn't want to be here, but, but I sure learned a lot. So, um, and I was used to, to that. I knew that there there might be people who felt that way, but I also felt confident at that point, after what thirty or forty years of analyzing writing, that I had a pretty good idea what I was doing, and they would benefit from it. Okay, then maybe getting into the content of those seminars of your your legal writing advice, um, starting broadly, what um, what sort of things do you do you find that attorneys might tend to to get wrong when it comes to approaching writing, or what uh, fundamental philosophical um, issues might attorneys have with with the writing they try to produce? I'm going to answer your question in uh, in kind of a uh, an obtuse way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think one of the biggest problems lawyers have with their writing is not with their writing, it's with their thinking. And I think that lawyers, not every single one, not the really good ones, but a lot of lawyers think that they have to be caustic, acerbic, they have to be um, demanding, uh, they have to be vociferous in their briefs, um, you know, yelling on, on paper, um, to be an advocate. You know, I am an advocate, and and I'm going to represent my, my client by God. And what they don't realize is that that is the fastest way to lose a case, is to start becoming demanding and dogmatic and pedantic and all of that stuff in, in a brief. Judges don't like it. And lawyers also forget that, that clerks read the briefs first, and they, they write little memos about or big memos about what they found in that, those briefs, the three briefs that they had in front of them. And they, they will note that this was, uh, there was a lot of hyperbole. There are a lot of claims that didn't, that I, I, you know, when I checked their citations, they were incorrect. They didn't quote them properly. Uh, and that goes right into the memo that the judge reads before she looks at the briefs. Um, and that immediately turns off a judge. I, I've taught writing programs to the judges of the Ninth Circuit, and I was at there. It was a winter retreat, and and uh, this one time, and 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 I was there for a couple of days, so I had time just to kind of socialize a little bit, and and during the uh, two writing programs I taught for them, and they they told me it's like a group of fifty lawyer, uh, fifty judges in a room. They told me there are two ways to tell. A lawyer has no case. Number one was the lawyer would ask for more pages. Uh, or today, with the new um, limits they have, it would be more words, a word limit. And number two is they get loud in their in their briefs. And the louder they scream, the weaker their case. And you have to realize too, you might read if you're a practicing lawyer, you might read you know quite a few briefs. A judge and a clerk will read hundreds and hundreds of times more than that, and they see these big cross sections, and and they see lawyers use the word clearly over and over and over again when nothing's clear, and that that's a marked word. Don't you ever use the word clearly? Because even if it is clear, because they know that most of the time a lawyer uses that word because it isn't clear, and they can't think anything else to say about it. So they just say it's clear. They just label it themselves. That's a dead giveaway that a lawyer doesn't have a case. So I think that that's where we need to start. And I, I eventually, over the years, I worked in uh, an ethics component. In fact, the entire afternoon on writing briefs uh, was given ethics credit because I talked about just these points. Uh, and after I had said, you can't do this and can't do this and can't do that, and that's going to turn off a judge and this and this is going to put you and your client in a bad light, then I would say, okay, now that we've gotten all that out of the way, here's how to do it properly so you don't have to yell and scream. And, um, you know, and I would have a list of five or six specific things you can do um, to get that judge's uh, attention and write in a, in a way that is clean and clear and concise. And the other, the other main problem that lawyers have besides their whole sort of ethical approach to writing briefs philosophical approach is um, it's just, they just overwrite. It's just too many words, and that's been the common problem, and that goes back centuries. It's not like something that just happened. 
um, and we still have vestiges of all the stuff, and we, we, we pad things because we think it sounds more eloquent. We think it sounds more authoritative. Uh, we throw phrases in there that we think uh, make us sound smarter, and all of that stuff detracts from what we're trying to do. Uh, and that's part of what Word Drake does is it helps you spot some of those kinds of phrases that add no meaning to the sentence, and you want to get rid of them. But those are the those are the two main things. We just overwrite, and we also take the wrong uh, perspective when we're sitting down to write. And you'll find in the in the big firms that uh, can pick and choose among the the brightest candidates coming into the practice of law. Uh, these these firms. Um, and there are exceptions, uh, and exceptions within firms. But I've talked to too many of these managing partners and partners in charge of training at these big firms, and they they want me to talk about ethics. They want these young people to learn that that is not how you're effective. So there are a lot of good lawyers out there uh, writing really well and ethically, and they're much more successful because of that. Getting into some more specific and technical errors that you might see or just um, suboptimal strategies that you might counsel against. Uh, you, you talk about things like nominalization or interrupting clauses or repetition as typical pitfalls. Could you tell me a bit more about, about these and other common missteps that you feel attorneys make in filings? Well, I'm impressed you know the word nominalization, Brian, <laughs> because uh, I can be in front of 100 lawyers in a room and I say, has anybody ever heard the word nominalization? <laughs> And out a word, a handle go up that they've heard that that word. Um, nominalizations are uh, they're just nouns that should and could be verbs, could and should be, I should say, verbs. Uh, it just enlivens our writing and makes it brighter. We get rid of this dull um, pattern of writing stuff like uh, make a recommendation. Uh, it sounds grander in the ear of the writer, but the ear of the reader really wants to hear the verb recommend. Uh, and that, that and getting rid of passive voice, making it active, are the two ways that we can make our writing uh, much, much brighter. It just enlivens our, our writing. So getting rid of nominalizations is one. Um, there, there are signs that I give people. Um, this is something I, I told you. I, I, I analyze all this stuff, and I'd be teaching the lawyers. This goes back many years. And I can remember noticing that I would have these, uh, this is back even when we had carousel slide projectors, didn't have PowerPoint very early on, and I would have a, a sentence up here on the slide, and we're looking at that, and we're saying, we could make this better. Look, we don't need these words. And then the words would turn red, you know, and I'd, then we'd have the edited sentence. Well, I noticed one day that after about three of those examples we needed to tighten, the word of appeared right in the middle of the words that we could get rid of. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And two years go by, three years go by, and I started to notice that there was another little word, too. I used to tell people, get rid of the word, not get rid of the word of, word of is fine, but look around it for junk. You'll often find it there. Um, and then I noticed that the little word in just opened a pat junk phrase and an ordinance number of times. Um, so I would say, well, just look for the word in. Like, in fact, in this case, in the context of, um, and, um, and then 
another year or two would go by and I'd see the word as or the word or or it or that. And then, and this, this was really the key to all of it, one day I realized that I had about a dozen of these signs and I had not seen another one in years. And I wondered, do I have a finite set of signs that I could patent and, and produce algorithms from to create editing software to help lawyers um, and anybody in the legal profession? It, I, actually, it, you could use you can use Wordrake to write poetry. Um, you could use these signs to write poetry. It just it's all the same. You asked me earlier, is there a difference between legal writing and 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 uh, more generic writing or creative writing? The answer is it's exactly the same. Might be a different goal might have a different audience, but you want to get rid of words that don't have meaning. Um, so these signs that word rake work in, in, in a generic setting, too. Um, it's very helpful for lawyers who are under huge time constraints. And But anyhow, filed for a patent, got the uh, patent, um, and then since then we filed six more patents on using these signs. So we now have seven patents granted by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And whenever you, when I, I would teach the people, I would say whenever you see one of these signs, an in and it and of, it does not mean there's a problem. It means that the likelihood there's a problem is great enough that it warrants taking a little closer look. Um, just look around this, and you'll often, not every time, but you'll often find words we can get rid So uh, there are patterns to spot anomalizations. Um, and that's what these these uh, algorithms are all about, and what the WordRake software is all about. So you, you founded that company in 2012. Since then, how has the reception been? It seems like that editing software is the accumulation and distillation of, as you're saying, your your years of of um, seminar advice. How how has it been received by attorneys who use it? It's been hugely received. Um, you know, people have said, I can't believe no one else thought of this. You know, why is it taking so long? Um, and I, I know the answer to that. <laughs> the answer is it is enormously difficult to do this. Um, you know, I create the algorithms. I have this great team of former Microsoft engineers who are just a dream to work with. And they uh, they take my algorithms if you will, in my edits, and then they they hook these into the language they have to use to program it, and then create, you know, attach it, hook it up to an, a user interface. Any of your engineer people out there who might be listening will laugh at what I just said because it's obvious I'm not an engineer. Um, but what what I do in in formulating these algorithms is kind of an engineering type thing that I have to do first to give to them to create these edits, but. The lawyers, um, we are growing really fast. We uh, we founded the country, uh, the company back in probably 2010. I'm trying to recall now, 2010, and then spring of maybe in, in Wordrake, the first uh, Wordrake one in uh, June of 2012, as you pointed out. So we're, we've been out there almost five years now. We've got two of the three largest law firms in the world are using Wordrake. Uh, We've got uh, people at the uh, DOJ in Washington, D.C. are using WordRake. Uh, we've got over 7,000 firms. A lot of AMLAW 100 firms are using it. Um, it's uh, the U.S. Postal Service, the um, 
Baker, McKenzie, Littler, Mendelson. We've got all these big law firms. Um, and it's just, it's been very well received. I know that these, part of the reason I'm mentioning some of these people is that you know and I know that they're going to vet this software for security reasons and to make sure that they want to spend money on these these firm big firms have a lot of money they 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 um they produce uh revenue of, in the hundreds of millions if not billions of dollars but they don't waste a penny of it. they try not to waste a penny of it so when it starts being accepted by these big firms you know that they have gone through that whole vetting process and the government agencies uh they've gone through the vetting process and determined that this this is economically feasible, it helps people, and it plays nice with everything else. Those are the three things that you really want in, in software. So, and, But we also learned um, that, you know, I, I thought and my business partners thought that if we went to the lawyers and we said, um, we showed them the software, and they went, oh my gosh, we got to have that, that's fantastic, that would be so great, we'd, we'd save time, we wouldn't have to spend so much uh, effort, you know, editing the associates' work, they would come in with it already mostly edited, and we could talk about substance, And but that's not the way it works. You have to go to the IT department. <laughs> Everything goes through IT, and we are in really thick with the IT people. We're um, we're, uh, we work very closely with the International Legal Technology Association, ILTA, um, that has members around the world. They have 22,000 members, huge organization. ILTA itself uses WordRake, and there are 30 people in their home office. Um, so we, we just gotten, uh, and we, we, we go to conventions. We go to the ILTA convention. We go to the ABA convention. And people just come up, and, and I might be showing somebody WordRake, and then I'll have somebody come up and say, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just got to tell you, I love your software. And I and I just kind of stand back, and, and this happens all the time. And I just let them talk to the person I was trying to show the software to. So And it it's so easy to use. We have it refined to the point now. I wanted this to look like a real editor. I wanted it to be the red pen with the cross outs, and here's what I think you should put in there. Just leave the whole thing crossed out. And that's what our engineers were able to do. So when you get it now, it's not red, it's more of an orangey color. Um, but all you do is is create something in Word or Outlook, and you open the WordRake ribbon. Once it's installed, it'll just appear there above the Microsoft ribbon. You just open it and push the rake button. That's all you do. And it just ripples through, it's lightning fast. Uh, it'll ripple through, uh, you know, a 12-page brief in like a minute. Um, nicely edited, sitting there waiting for you to approve the edits, and then it'll reset at the opening, and then you just, uh, wherever it made that first edit, and it's got accept, reject buttons, It's uh, it operates just like track changes within Microsoft Word track changes. And um, and they, you just click and say, I like that, I like that, I like that. This one, I, I like the word indeed, so I'm going to keep it. Word rake would get rid of the word in, indeed, but um, if they like it, it uh, they hit reject. Re- indeed stays right there, and it takes them to the next edit. Um, so it is as close as you can get to a human editor. And I look at it as a collaboration here. I um, it it it'll see things that you know we just get so tired of looking at what uh, what we've been writing for quite some time, and we don't see what's actually there. Um, there are other times when um, 
we're just tired, period, and we're going to miss stuff that, that's there. And then other times there are things that need to be taken out that we don't even realize need to be taken out. So the software knows these things. It never gets tired. It doesn't get bored. Um, and it knows things that a human editor cannot keep in his head. You cannot keep all the, it's just orders of magnitude that these uh, exponentially uh, edits that we can create with WordRake, uh, and you can't keep all that in your head. On the other hand, I will be the first to admit, and I have many times publicly, that at least for the next 100 years or so, maybe 10 or 20, things happen fast, there will not be technology that can edit a document as well as an experienced, talented human editor. But as I just said, even that editor cannot keep in her head all of the edits, all the things that need to be considered. We're dealing with over 200,000 English words and all the permutations. So that uh, our software, WordRake, will, will be able to house far more edits than any editor uh, could, could keep in her head. So it works as a collaboration. I would say uh, we probably give you an accurate edit 90 to 95% of the time. The other 5, 6, 7% of the time, it might change the meaning of a sentence slightly, and that's where we lawyers live in nuance. Um, but you'll see what it was trying to do, and it draws your attention to that part of the sentence, and then you make the, the correction. Uh, other times, and this is, I, I found this when I would teach, it's same thing with, with WordRake, is WordRake will make an edit, and you'll look at that sentence where you just accepted that edit, and there are no edits left from WordRake. But you'll now see, because of the edit WordRake just made and you approved, you will now see things existing in that sentence you didn't see before, and you'll now improve that sentence even further. And that's the collaboration ex uh, part of it, that um, it's that relationship with the writer. As you, you say, the software is well-received, and having used it myself, uh, I can profess its benefits and, and uses, certainly. But you note that compared to an experienced editor, and that's the, the, the best thing to have a human editor. Is there any part of you as a professional writer that sort of rebels a bit against the notion of having this uh, mechanical editor, um, considering how you know, writing and editing are sort of personal, idiosyncratic, and creative pursuits? That is an excellent, excellent question. And um, I, you know, we'll get rid of something like, um, what judges call this wind-ups or, or throat clearing, uh, this, this kind of opening when you say, it must be remembered that. You know, and, and that's one of our signs. It's part of our patents and algorithms, and we'll get rid of it. And I remember speaking to a young woman. She was, uh, she was a, a, a friend of... Uh, a guy, a younger guy who was helping us with some stuff online, and she was getting her master's in English, and he was showing her how this word rake works, and, and so she saw that, and she said, well, you can't take that out. And I said, well, why can't you take that out? And she said, well, that's the writer's voice. And I, I didn't say anything to her at the time. I don't want to appear heavy-handed, but but when you write something like, it must be remembered that, that's not somebody's voice. That is, those are words that add nothing to the meaning of what that voice is trying to say. So 
we we write um, your, your your writer your writing style. Let's call it style. Your writing style is you can't help. It's a part of your personality. It's where you went to school, where you are in the sibling ranks, how your much your parents read, uh, where you were educated. It's all of that stuff. It's a part of our personality, and we all have different writing styles. And we can, I, I've told lawyers for years, you know, we could all go downstairs here and take a, uh, take our laptops and we could look out at the street and we could all write one paragraph describing that street scene. And we would have, say, 80 paragraphs. Each one of those paragraphs could be perfect. We wouldn't change a single word in any of those paragraphs. And yet, some paragraphs would be longer than others. Now, how can all of them be perfect if some are longer? And the answer to that is your writing style. I just choose to describe a car this way, and somebody else described it a different way. His required two words, mine required three words, but there's nothing to edit within those two or those three words. So word rake will come to that style uh, all 80 styles and make each one of the 80 writers better within that style. It does not change their style. It gets rid of words that don't have meaning. And throwing words that have no meaning into a sentence is not someone's style. It's just kind of writing that could be improved, could be made more succinct. R- realize, too, that a machine did not create this machine that it's this is years and years decades of experience and study and doing it myself uh and creating edits that i would make with my own pen except i'm not there you have this this uh software right there and you push that button it's going to point out the same thing i would have pointed out to you so uh word rate users aren't all having their writings homogenized to be spit out to look exactly the same yeah, people used to ask me that. Is it all we're all going to end up writing exactly the same? Is it, no, you're going to continue writing the way you've been writing. You're just going to be better at it. It's going to be the same style. Maybe one last one in terms of your own writing. Do you have any projects that you're working on now? Oh, I'm uh, Word Rake really is the focus of almost everything I'm doing now. We're going in so many different directions, and um, you know, we're we're creating new things. And I've I've constantly got so many edits in my head uh, if the engineers could see my don't tell them i said this but if they could see my office i've got piles of you know you know you've heard about writers will write that, that they get an idea for a piece of dialogue and they'll put it on a napkin or a gum wrapper and then and then you know a year later they find a jacket that's filled with all these gum wrappers and stuff <laughs> i'm not quite to that point yet but i mean i've got drawers full i i've got books that are dog-eared with with edits that I just have not yet had time to get into WordRake. It'll edit so much stuff for people now. I mean, now that we, we launched WordRake 3 in November, and it finally, uh, that's what I had hoped, uh, being the creator of it, I had hoped we'd been able to start with something like uh, WordRake 3, but it finally has gotten to the stage where I'm, I'm feeling really good about it, and, and uh, we're making new edits all the time that will be incorporated into it. So it's a lot of fun doing that. And my hobby, one of my hobbies, I guess, is film and writing a screenplay. I've been working on a screenplay for 15 years now. So 
whenever I have a chance early in the morning or on the weekends, I I work on a screenplay, and boy, that is, talk about a challenge. It's an entirely different way of writing, and I've learned why studios will not hire the author of a book to come in and write the screenplay. You would think it would be a natural, but it actually makes it that much more, di- you have to unlearn everything you know about writing before you can write a screenplay, but it's it's been an enormous amount of fun working on at the same time, so... And and let me uh, tell your your folks one thing, Brian. Please. And this is going to be your name and lights here. Uh, you are now a URL, uh, believe it or not. Okay. So, if your listeners uh, want more information, or they can get a seven day free trial of the WordRake software I've just been blabbing about here, they can go to wordrake.com/brian, and that's Brian with an I. And and it's not there are no caps. It's just small b r i a n. And if you choose to purchase uh, the WordRake software, uh, we have a coupon code for you. Uh, and that, again, is Brian. No no caps. It's not sensitive to the caps. Uh, B-R-I-A-N. Just type in that as a coupon code, and you'll get a 10% uh, discount if you want to want to buy the software. Well, you've been tremendously generous with your time and considering your, your workload and all those projects. I should let you get going, Mr. Gary Kinder, founder of WordRake and best-selling author. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Brian, I want to thank you for the opportunity to talk with your audience. Uh, This has really been fun, and you can tell I get excited about talking about writing. So thank you very much. Have a nice week. Thank you, and I'm I'm duly honored to uh, have my own URL on the the WordRake site. (laughs) I'm I'm sure you are. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, thanks so much. And with that, our program for February 17th is complete take this opportunity one last time to tender very sincere gratitude to Mr. Gary Kinder, Wardrake founder, best-selling author, and noted legal writing instructor. Hope you enjoyed our conversation. I certainly did. And don't forget, one hour of CLE credit can be yours for tuning into the podcast. So any link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardile. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <music>